0: Good morning. It is good to be here. It's really sweet to be able to see your faces uh, for the first time in a number of months during worship, and I'm going to try not to cry. Um, It's a thrill to be able to open God's Word with you and preach. So let's go to him now and ask him for his help uh, for me and for you. Let's pray. Father, uh, we are fragile and we're needy. And we don't trust in ourselves in any way, certainly not right now as we come to your word. And so we pray for you to be with us and for you to help us. And our confidence and our comfort is that we know that you love us and that you are completely and always faithful to us. And so we pray that you would give us, by your spirit, eyes to see what your word says is true. Give us hearts that would love it. We pray above all things that we would see Christ from your word today and that you would remind us of the inheritance that is ours in him and of the unshakable hope that you have called us to. We pray all of these things because they're good for us and we know you are honored when we look away from ourselves and trust Christ completely. So we pray for that to happen. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm. Friends, we are back today in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. The fourth of 21 sermons, God willing, in this wonderful letter. By way of introduction, I I want us to think for just a minute about why it is that we need to hear the gospel every time we gather. Martin Luther said, This and I I agree with him. When asked why he preached the gospel to his people every time they gathered, he said, I do that. I preach the gospel to my people every week because we all tend to forget it. See, the gospel is what the saints need to hear, most importantly, every time we gather. Sometimes in the church, in our context, we tend to think that, well, yeah, the gospel needs to be proclaimed so that. If anybody shows up to church who doesn't yet believe in Jesus, they will hear it. Oh, amen to that. People come and they come to a service of CBC. I trust they are going to hear the gospel. And we pray that God would impart faith. But it is also true that the saints, the redeemed, we need to hear the gospel every time we gather because we are so prone to forget it. Many things in this fallen world wage war against our faith. We battle our flesh, our sin, all the time. Satan accuses us, and it's not as though he doesn't have material to work with. The great accuser of the brethren throws those fiery darts all the time. Our lives are very full, they're very busy, and we can easily become overwhelmed or at least distracted. And if we're honest, our experience in this life often speaks a very different word than God does. What I mean by that is that God tells us he loves us. He tells us that he's good and faithful and sovereign. But even in this room today, many hearts are breaking. Many days are full of tears and pain. God tells us that we are his children, but we often don't feel like that. At times we feel like we are his enemies because we're sinning and we know he hates sin. And because our lives are often hard, we have a difficult time reconciling those realities that God tells me I'm his child but yet my life is this way. We need to be regularly reminded of the hope God has called us to. And we need to be regularly reminded of the power, the mercy, the grace and the love of Christ for us. And that's what we're going to consider today. If you have your Bibles with you, open them up to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll be looking today at Ephesians 1:15 through 23. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry about that. We will have the words to the text printed on the screen behind me, and you will be able to follow along with us there. Before we go any further, I want to read God's word for us. Beginning in Ephesians 1 and verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, Remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, Thanks be to God for his word. I have five points and a conclusion for us today. Five points and a conclusion as we make our way through the text. These headings for the five points are not all that succinct. My apologies in advance. I will try to repeat them enough that you can wrap your mind around them and track with me. So point number one, from verse 15, we see that Paul is thankful for the Ephesian Christians and prays for them because he has heard of their faith in Christ and their love toward the saints. I'll say that again. In verse 15, we see Paul is thankful for the Ephesian Christians and prays for them because he has heard of their faith in Christ and their love toward the saints. Faith in Christ, love toward the saints. It's pretty noteworthy. Many theologians through history have observed, as John Calvin wrote of this verse, That, quote, under faith and love, Paul includes generally the whole excellence of Christian character, close quote. Faith here, meaning faith, of course, in Christ. He is the object of our faith. Love, meaning love toward neighbor in a general way, which begins with our love for the brothers and the sisters, our love for the saints. Something to consider. If we were asked... What are the marks of a Christian? And by that I mean, what are the characteristics of a Christian? What would be at the top of that list if you were to attempt to answer that question? Biblically, I would suggest we're on the right track if that list begins with faith in Christ, love for the saints. What are the marks of a Christian? It must begin there. Faith in the Lord Jesus and love for your brothers and sisters. Point one is now over. The others will not all be so brief. Number two, this one is short-ish as well. I'm just getting you guys warmed up for the longer points to come. Number two, from verses 16 and 17, we see that Paul prays the Ephesian Christians would be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. Paul prays the Ephesian Christians would be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. You can put your eyes on verses 16 and 17 and see that. The spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God is most certainly the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul means. The Holy Spirit or the Spirit of the Lord is described this way elsewhere in Scripture with those adjectives. Most notably in the prophets, maybe most notably amongst that in Isaiah chapter 11. So one might ask, well, brother, don't the Ephesian Christians already have the Holy Spirit? They're believing in Jesus. Don't they already have the Holy Spirit? The answer to that is yes, they do. They do. What Paul is praying for the Ephesians is simply a prayer for the Holy Spirit to do his work in the life of the saints. This is good for us to pray. We pray that God would sanctify us. We pray that. He would continue to grow us, that he would continue to teach us, that he would continue to renew our minds. And he is faithful to do it. And at the same time, we ask him to. Those things are not at all contradictory. God says, I'll do it, and we ask him to do it. It's not complicated in that regard. This is just like what David writes in Psalm 25, where he writes to the Lord, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Such is the prayers of the saints. Point number three. In verses 18 and 19, this this is long, track with me. We see this. The purpose of the Holy Spirit's work is that the Ephesian Christians would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened so that they might know three things. What are those three things? First, the hope to which God has called them. Second, the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. And third, the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward them. I'll say all that again. In Verses 18 and 19, we see that the purpose of the Holy Spirit's work is that the Ephesians would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened so that they might know, number one, the hope to which God has called them. Number two, the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. And number three, that they would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward them. So notice in what Paul is praying for the Ephesians, that he does not pray that the Spirit of God would lead people into something new that has not been known before or has never been seen before. Not asking for anything new. On the other hand, he prays that the Spirit would lead the Ephesians more deeply into the promises, power, and faithfulness of God. He prays that the Spirit would lead them into a deeper understanding of the gospel and the hope that they have in Christ. That's huge. And it's very instructive for us in terms of how we should think about growth in the Christian life. We're not looking for some new knowledge. We're not looking for some new revelation. We are looking for and asking for and praying that the Spirit would take us more deeply into The faithfulness, the power, the grace, the promises of God to us in Christ. That is what much of growth in the Christian life looks like in terms of a growth of understanding. So let's kind of take these one at a time. Still all under the heading of point three here. Paul prays that the Ephesian Christians would know the hope to which God has called them. This hope that they have been called to, that we in Christ have been called to, is none other than the hope of bodily resurrection and the hope of eternal blessedness with God. Think 1 Corinthians 15. Paul also wrote that letter to a different group of believers. In 1 Corinthians 15, he writes things such as this. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Everything that we lost in Adam's fall, we have in Christ. Already, and everything will be made new. Everything will be reversed when Christ comes back at the end of history. Paul also writes, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we also shall bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus. We will be like him. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, the hope to which we have been called. This is Revelation 21 kind of stuff where the Apostle John writes these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth has passed away. for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new, the hope to which we have been called. Battling and fighting and toiling and weeping will no longer be our experience. That'd about break your brain to try to wrap your mind around that because so much of our lives are characterized by pain and toil, and tears. There will be not only no more pain, there will be no more fear, no more depression, no more anxiety. Nothing in the new heavens and the new earth, this hope to which we have been called, nothing will ever change for the worse. The other shoe will never drop. Bad news will never come. This is what awaits those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise be to his name. And Paul says to the Ephesians, I pray that you would know that. Secondly, he prays that the Ephesian Christians would know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. And The wording of this is important. That you would know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. Not yours, God's. What Paul means here is that God will be glorified and God will be delighted in his inheritance of us. That's astonishing. The Lord, the one who is, who never got started and needs nothing, will be glorified and will be delighted to inherit us. How wonderful. We have this great hope to which we have been called and God will be glorified and God will be filled with joy when that hope is fully realized. Psalm 2, we heard it this morning. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. He's talking about the Messiah. You are my son, capital S. Today I have begotten you. And ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations like we sung earlier. Revelation 19. We talk about like an epic event to put a bow on all of history. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. Where the Apostle John writes this. From Revelation 19, verses 6 to 8. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. The bride is us. The bride is the church. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Think about Luke chapter 15. It's a pretty well-known chapter in the Bible for many. Luke chapter 15 contains in it three parables. The first one is about a man who has lost a sheep. He looks for it. He finds it. He lays this lost sheep on his shoulder and brings it home, and then he throws a party. He calls his neighbors and his friends, and they, he says, let's celebrate together. And Luke 15, verse 7 says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven when one sinner repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There's joy in heaven when sinners trust Christ. The second parable in Luke 15 is about a woman who has lost a very valuable coin. She turns the house inside out and upside down looking for it. She finds it. She too calls friends and neighbors and says, let's celebrate. Let's have a party. Luke 15 10 says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God when one sinner repents. The point of all this, brothers and sisters, is that God delights in saving us. There will be great joy in the inheritance of the Lord Jesus Christ in the saints. There will be great glory in that. Of course, the last parable in Luke chapter 15 is the one of the prodigal son. As well known as any parable is, I would wager. Many will know the story where there's a father who has two sons, and the younger son asks for his inheritance early. Before his father dies, he goes and blows it on sort of crazy living. He wakes up one day feeding pigs and is starving, and he says, you know, even the slaves and the servants in my father's house, they've got plenty to eat. I'll go back there, and I'll do it as a slave. I'll do it as a servant. He's got his pitch all prepared. That's what he's going to tell his dad. I'll come back, and I'll be a servant in your house. We know the story as he is making his way back. He's still a long way off and the father sees him coming and the father runs to him. And the son starts to speak. What does he say? Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. And he starts to say, I'm going to come back as a servant in your house. And the way it's written is as though the father interrupts him. And he's like, no, none of that, son. Bring quickly the best robe we've got in the house and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf. Let's celebrate. Let's have a party. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. Jesus in John 17, 24 prays, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The desire of Jesus, brothers and sisters, the desire of Jesus is that we would be with him. It will be Christ's glory and Christ's joy to inherit us. And Paul says to the Ephesians, I pray that you would know that. Thirdly, Paul prays that the Ephesians would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward the saints, which is going to transition us now into point number four of my outline. In verses 20 to 23, we see that God's power toward the saints is most evidently seen in the resurrection and exaltation of Christ and in Christ being given as head over all things to the church. Let me say that again. In verses 20 to 23, we see that God's power toward the saints is most evidently seen in the resurrection and exaltation of Christ and in Christ being given as head over all things to the church. So Christ, being raised from the dead, vindicated his sacrifice. Everything that he had done was legit and sufficient. And it secured our salvation. This is Romans 4.25. He was handed over for our transgressions and raised for our justification. Christ being raised also secured our bodily and eternal resurrection. We will be like him. We will see him as he is, 1 John 3. But also the point that Paul is making here is that the same power of God that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us. The same power of God that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us. It is the power of God that gave us life when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We'll think about that next week in Ephesians 2. God has made us alive together with Christ. It is the power of God that is at work in us to conform us to the image of Christ, to sanctify us. It is the power of God that will keep us in Christ to the end. It is the power of God that will raise us from the dead unto eternal life. The same power of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is at work in the saints. We see in these verses that Christ has been exalted and he has been seated at the right hand of God. He has been given, Paul says, as head over all things to the church, which is his body. Jesus is over all things. There is no one or nothing over him. He is in the position of supreme authority in the universe. But here's the thing about Jesus. He doesn't use that authority simply for his own sake. How does he use it? He uses his position, his head over all things, for the benefit of the church, which is his body. Christ is for us. He helps us. We have been united to him. We are his body and he is our head. And he cares for us. If you have your Bibles with you, and I'm not quite sure if the guys can pull this off in the back, uh, flip to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. It's always good to illustrate Bible with Bible, explain Scripture with Scripture, right? So we're going to do that for just a moment. We're going to connect together this exaltation of Christ and him being seated over all things. He's the head of everything and he helps us. He's for the church. Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. That's a citation of Psalm 8. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. So here again, the writer of the Hebrews understands that Psalm 8 is about Christ primarily. We see him who was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again... I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Those are all citations to demonstrate that Christ is not ashamed to call them brothers, call us brothers. Now, beginning in verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to, to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's us. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to make satisfaction for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being, suffered, who are being tempted, excuse me. The writer of the Hebrews is making the point that Jesus is the one to whom God has subjected all things. He is head of everything. He's in authority over everything. And yet here is what Christ has done. He who is over all things was made lower than the angels for a time. He who is over all things took on human flesh and suffered. He took on human flesh and was tempted. He took on human flesh so that he might destroy The one who has the power of death, that is the devil. The one who is head over all things was made like his brothers in every respect so that he might be a faithful and merciful intercessor for the saints. For surely it's not angels that he helps. It's the children of Abraham that he helps. It's marvelous to think that this one who has been exalted This one who has been seated at the right hand of God. This one who is in the greatest position of authority in the universe. Is the one who humbled himself by taking on human flesh and humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. This one who is head over all things, suffered a lawbreaker's fate for the sake of those who have broken God's law so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. It is only through the work, the perfect life of Jesus Christ, the suffering, the death of Jesus Christ, the satisfaction made for sin by Jesus Christ that the children of Abraham, the saints, could ever be reconciled to a holy God. The power of God is most evidently demonstrated in the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ and of him being given to the church as the head over all things. Which leads me now to point five, which is a reflection for us together. Number five, these things that Paul prays for the Ephesian Christians, and especially the truth that Christ is for us, are what sustain us in this life. Let me say that again. These things that Paul prays for the Ephesian Christians, that you would know the hope to which you've been called, that you would know the glorious inheritance of God and the saints, and that you would know the immeasurable greatness of the power of God toward you. Those truths sustain us in this life, and the truth that Christ, who is head of all things, has been given to the church, sustains us in this life. Let's think about that for a minute. Think about your battle against sin that is ongoing. So this is that daily, weekly, year after year, battle against your flesh. This stuff that it pops in your mind, these desires, these cravings that rise up, that take hold of you, that won't let you go. And you are constantly waging war against that. What fuels you in that battle? What sustains you in that fight? Now, this isn't an exhaustive answer, but I would suggest a sustaining grace of God in that fight is that Christ, who is head over everything, is interceding for you. That Christ, who is head over everything, is interceding for you. So we're thinking right now about the fact that Jesus is the high priest of his people. He's a mediator between God and man. He is an intercessor between us and God. Hebrews chapter 7, we read that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Romans 8 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. So there we have that exaltation piece. Who is at the right hand of God. We've read that elsewhere. Who indeed is interceding for us. So as you go through life, in particular, as you battle against sin and you fight against the flesh, What difference would it make to know that Jesus is effectively in the next room praying for you? Might move the needle a little bit. Because he is. Functionally, he is. He always lives to make intercession for the saints. It's a tremendous help in time of difficulty and struggle. And I would contend and suggest to us that the more we orient our minds and our gaze upon Christ and His intercessory work, the more we are sustained in the battle against sin. The more we attempt to just white-knuckle the thing, the worse it goes. Because you, in your own strength and in your own willpower, will not do well in battling the temptations of the flesh. won't happen. Another consideration. Think about not just your ongoing general battle against sin. Think about when you sin. When it happens. What then? What do you got in that moment? Maybe you've just done something you swore you'd never do. Maybe you've been fighting like crazy and you've been resisting and then now I've given in and it's done. What then? Again, not an exhaustive answer, but I would suggest in those moments when you sin, what will sustain you in the fight is that Christ, who is head of everything, is your advocate. Not just your intercessor, he's your advocate. There's a difference in those two words. As an intercessor, he's a high priest, he's a mediator. As an advocate, he in a particular situation is pleading your case, he is your defender. First John 2:1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Amen. As Christians through history have noted, Christ intercedes for us in an ongoing way because we are generally sinners, but he is our advocate in times when we fall into particular sins. John Bunyan. Many may be familiar with that name. He wrote a a book that I believe is still the number two all-time best-selling book called Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan wrote this, quote, Christ as priest, so when you hear priest, think intercessor, think mediator. Christ as priest acts in times of peace. The Christ as advocate in times of broils, turmoils, and sharp contentions. Wherefore, Christ as advocate is as I may call him a reserve and in and his time is then as advocate to arise to stand up and plead when his own are clothed with some filthy sin that of late they have fallen into close quote the role of christ as advocate is to rise up and plead the case for his own when they are clothed with some filthy sin that of late they have fallen into those of us who have been united to jesus by faith still sin we talk about that quite a bit It's that saint-sinner reality. It's Romans 7. It's Galatians 5.17. I don't do the things I want to do, and I do the things that I don't want to do because my spirit and my flesh are at war with each other. I'm at the same time a saint and a sinner who will deliver me. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's that reality. So those of us who have been united to Jesus by faith still sin. And because we have been born again by the Spirit of God, our sin grieves us. That, at an experiential level, is a big piece of the difference between somebody who is trusting Christ and someone who's not. It's not that the believer doesn't sin and the unbeliever sins. No. It's that for the saint, our sin grieves us because we are in tune to the heinous nature of it. We see it for what it is. But nevertheless, we sin, sometimes in big ways. How sweet it is to consider that it isn't just that we have a safe legal standing before God because of the work of Christ. We have an advocate who loves us. We have an advocate who willingly and joyfully pleads our case. When we fall. Don't miss that important aspect of this. He is our advocate when we are caught in sin, not once we've gotten beyond it. He is our advocate when we are caught in sin, not once we've gotten over it and have gotten victory. Because that's how we think. We're foolish when it comes to this. We think that, all right, I've sinned. God is not pleased with me. I'm going to distance myself from him. And once I have done something, some form of penance in my own mind, or once you know, I have adequate victory, then I will go back to God. No. We go to him when we sin. Why? Because Christ the righteous is our advocate. We are called as saints to forsake sin. Amen, somebody. We are called in Christ to forsake sin. Sin, we know this. We've talked about this a lot just in Proverbs recently as a church. Sin never brings anything good. If you think on it for a moment, you will not be able to come up with a single thing in your life that sin has ever done that's good. It wrecks our lives. And when we sin, we are living contrary to our identity in Christ. We are living contrary to our identity as children of God when we sin. But here's the thing. Praise be to Christ that even when we do not forsake sin, He never forsakes us. The one who is head of all things who has been exalted, who is seated at the right hand of God, the one over whom no one or nothing is, pleads our case. Think about suffering. Think about the hope to which you've been called, the glorious riches of God's inheritance in the saints, the immeasurable greatness of the power of God toward you, the fact that Christ, who is head over all things, has been given for your benefit. Think about when you suffer, the things that you have experienced or the suffering that you will experience in short order because suffering is normal in this fallen world. What then? What sustains you in the midst of it? It's the things that we've been considering today. It's the hope to which we've been called. It's resurrection and eternal blessedness with God. It's that all will be well one day. We live from the end of the story backwards. It's the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints that he delights so much to save me that there will be joy in heaven when Christ inherits his bride. It fills you with hope. It doesn't take the pain away. It gives you hope. When you suffer, consider that Christ, who is head of everything, knows your suffering. He knows our sorrow. We read about it in Hebrews. He's tempted in every way that we are. Because the children suffer, he suffered. He sympathizes with us in our weakness. God is not some distant despot off in the heaven somewhere, just cold and indifferent toward the suffering of his children. God the Son took on flesh. He entered this wasteland called fallen earth and suffered. And because he knew that suffering, because he knew sorrow to the point of death, we will finally be delivered from suffering and sorrow and death. In conclusion, friends, I I want us to consider briefly Lamentations 3. You don't need to turn there. Lamentations 3 was actually our call to worship today in God's providence. There's some words there that are significant that I think are in lockstep with what Paul prays for the Ephesian Christians. Paul prays that the Ephesian Christians would know more deeply what is true of God, what is true of His power toward them, and what is true of Christ being for them, being given to them as the head of all things. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 21 to 24, are what we're going to consider. Very briefly, for those not very familiar with Lamentations, written by the prophet Jeremiah, it comes in your Bible right after the bigger book that bears his name. Jeremiah is a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah. In particular, he's in the holy city, Jerusalem, when Babylon has taken it captive. He, Babylon has conquered the city of God, and it's ruin. It's carnage. It's disaster. Everything's terrible. God, where are you? God, what about your promises? We're being destroyed We're being pillaged and killed. We're being plundered. That's the context. It's so bad that mothers are reduced to eating their children. It's in Lamentations. And then, seemingly out of nowhere, in verse 21 of Lamentations 3, after pages of lament and weeping and horror, come these words. But this I call to mind. And therefore, I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. So, friends, at the bottom of it, when everything around our souls give way and our lives are falling apart, in our dark days, even in our decent ones, at the bottom of it. Don't ask me how I feel about something. Let's not ask each other how we feel about something. Because we feel all kinds of ways all the time. Don't ask me what I feel, ask me what I know. Ask me about what God has said, right? My experiences are going to be all over the map. My emotions and my feelings are going to be all over the map. Don't ask me what I feel. Ask me what I know and ask me what the Lord has said. And what has he said? What do we know? It's the things that Paul prays for the Ephesian Christians. There's a hope to which you've been called. You know that. God has said that. God is going to be glorified and God is going to be filled with joy when he inherits the saints. You know that. He's told you that. And God's power toward you, toward those who believe in his son, is immeasurable in its greatness. Just look at Christ. He's been exalted as the head of all things. And he has been given to you for your benefit as his body, the church. So as Paul prayed, may God give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. May God enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we might know the hope to which he has called us, so that we might know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and so that we might know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. May it be so. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we Pray these things for ourselves that you would continue by your Spirit to teach us and to grow us, that you would enlighten, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would cause us to see even more deeply this morning these wonderful things the hope you've called us to, your glorious inheritance in the saints and your immeasurably great power toward us. We also pray for ourselves, as Paul does elsewhere in Ephesians, that you would strengthen us in our inner man so that we might comprehend the height, the depth, the length, and the breadth of the love of Christ for us. Father, this is what we need, and we pray for you to do it. We pray that you would use the preaching of your word to do it. We pray that you would use the table as we are about to come to it to do these things. And to remind us of these things and to drive us more deeply into these things. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we.